This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to talk to you about a brief introduction to firearms for those that are considering dipping their toe into this murky water. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich what's going on brother not much my man it is murky water indeed and we are fixing to wade out into it yeah there's a and i say murky because there's a lot of bad information out there a lot of information that's maybe just not the best and a lot of stuff that is just Dead ass wrong, man. And that's part of the problem. You know, we've talked about this offline, you and I and me and several other of our friends. And I think if you haven't, you know, served in a profession of firearms and you weren't raised around firearms and this kind of community, if you're coming at it later in life, it's hard to discern the good stuff from the bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, man. You are, you're not lying there at all because... Uh, you know, I, I'm. This is one of our notes later on to to talk about toward the end of the show. But listening to to gun store experts, uh, people that work in gun stores, cops, people that have been in the military, none of that means you know the first damn thing about firearms, man. Yeah, that's an absolute fact, man. And it, it it would seem to be the opposite. But think about it from the context of just because the guy's working at Lowe's doesn't necessarily mean that he knows how to build your house. Just because the guy's you know, working for $9 an hour at the local Bob's gun shop doesn't mean that he can run a gun professionally. The other thing, the other thing real quick is, especially with the advent of YouTube, you have uh, any number of so-called experts out there willing to give you their advice for a subscribe, you know, subscribe and like now. That's absolutely true, man. And, you know, just because I can play a guitar doesn't mean I can teach you how to play a guitar. There, there's a big difference between a, being able to do a thing and being able to teach someone else about that topic or how to do it. So, yeah, man, it, this is um, this is a big, big topic. So what we're going to cover today is kind of just some, you know, probably if you're a, a avid listener to the American Warrior Show, you may not get a whole lot out of this because we're going to cover some basic stuff that... You should just be thinking about before you really even consider owning a firearm. We'll, we'll talk about why you might want to own firearms. We're going to talk about the legal, ethical, and financial ramifications of firearms ownership, and there are many of those. We're going to talk about uh, safety, uh, the purchase process, and and a few other things I'm sure thrown in there. And I'm sure we'll probably sidetrack a bunch and add a bunch of other stuff in there. But uh, anyway... Uh, what did you do this week, Rich? Well, before we do that, I, because I, I did some really cool ATPAF stuff this week, but before we get into that, I do want, Justin, could you let them know that and explain a little bit that this is really part one in a multi-part series that we're going to have on firearms? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry about that, brother. Yeah, we, we don't really know exactly how many episodes this is going to go. But so we recorded this episode once and it started out as how to select a, a, a handgun 
and we realized, man, there's all this other stuff we needed to cover. That episode ended up being like three hours long and it was all over the place because we kept thinking of like, oh, we should definitely cover safety rules. So we decided to go back and do just a baseline introduction. Uh, We will eventually in this series have some guests on. We're going to get into how to select a handgun, how to select a long guns, how to seek competent training and how to how to build your own training plan because training is absolutely imperative to the safe and successful employment of a firearm in any field whether you're a hunter a competitor a self-defender a this is just a personal hobby whatever it is you need some training we're going to talk about legal stuff we're going to have attorney andrew bronca on to talk about the legalities of using a firearm in self-defense this is going to be a big multi-part series we're not going to do those all at once we're going to space them out because we don't want to overwhelm you with uh with tactical stuff we don't want to do a straight month and a half of firearm stuff because we know some of you guys aren't interested in that stuff at all so uh these will be sprinkled in with uh you know with just everything else we're talking about uh and now i'm just using a bunch of filler words because i'm not sure where to go but yeah that's our idea rich yeah right on man so what did i do this week let's return to your original question i did some brazilian jiu-jitsu of course um, did some work with our farrier to make sure that the horses are taken care of, their hooves are, at least for the start of the winter, and did a little light tractor work here on the farm. So that's what I've been up to. What about you, bro? That's awesome, man. So I bottled a batch of beer this week. I bottled a, um, oh, why am I losing my train? Oh, so uh, I, I think I've talked about this batch before when we initially made it. It is a uh, porter that we added some vanilla to. Man, this th- turned out absolutely phenomenal. It smells amazing. I can't wait until it's ready to drink. But we bottled that up and got it ready to go. And we uh, brewed another batch. We brewed a Dunkel. Uh, that's uh, I'm sorry. We brewed a holiday ale with some uh, orange spices and some baking spices in it. And uh, we were having some people over this weekend to uh, to drink a little bit of our beer. And I'll tell you, man, we do this every single week, but I've never talked about it on the show. Every weekend, we make a breakfast hash. We take uh, one Yukon gold potato, chop it up into tiny little cubes. We f- uh, fry that up. We throw some hamburger in there. We throw a couple of eggs in there, usually and like half an onion and a jalapeno, and scramble that all up. And we um, will take some sort of bread and lay it flat, and just put that hash over it, and sprinkle it down with some yum yum sauce. And that's our man. That's our Sunday breakfast treat. Dude, that sounds legit. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll tell you what, man. I can post a step by step recipe on uh, on acrosspeak.com about our breakfast hash if you want, because we absolutely. Love it. We found it by accident. We were cleaning out the fridge one morning, like, what the hell are we going to have for breakfast? And Kai's like, well, we got this potato here, and we've got a little bit of, ha- we've got a hamburger patty left over from last night, and we've, we just started throwing stuff in and realized we had made something amazing. I love it, man. Nice. So you're making dunkle, is that right? Uh, well, we've got a dunkle that's almost ready to bottle. We brewed that a few weeks ago. Uh, we've got, uh, we just made a holiday ale uh, that's, uh, I am really, man, it smells so stinking good. It's not even funny. It's got um, dried uh, orange peel and some baking spices in that uh, fermenter with it, which has given it just this, It's I, I got a feeling it's going to be kind of like Sam Adams winter uh, with that, you know, kind of 
un, very subtle notes of spices and orange in there. Yeah, Dunkles are getting popular down here in Tennessee. What about up there in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and your beer scene? What's what's that like? Are Dunkles a big thing? Yeah, they are, man. I mean, they're popular. I think they're kind of undergoing a resurgence, man. And I just became aware of this thanks to Kai, man. I had never, I didn't know what it was, so it always shied away from it. And uh, I think I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, man. She loves Warsteiner Dunkel, and now I do too. And we, if we see a Dunkel, we get it. Yeah, good deal. So where do we want to start with our introduction to firearms, part one? Well, hold hold, hold on, man. We uh, we, we uh, haven't talked about what we're drinking this week. What oh, are you drinking, man? damn, we did. We skipped over that. Somebody would have called us out. I am drinking Four Roses bourbon, and I know you're not necessarily a bourbon guy, but are you familiar with Four Roses? Brother, what are you talking about? I love bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am familiar with Four Roses. I'll, I'll be honest; it's not my favorite bourbon, but it is absolutely drinkable. Um, as I think you know, I'm a I'm a bullet guy, and I feel like those two are kind of uh, you know right around the same uh, kind of quality standard and price point and all that. But uh, it, it's not a bad bourbon; it's just not my favorite. Yeah, Four Roses, a uh, really cool distillery. We, we really enjoy that, and I will tell you, I've had their uh, small batch. I've had their uh, single barrel, and I. Oddly enough, I really like just their basic Four Roses bourbon. I, I think the mash bill is probably better than than some of the other ones you might get with uh, with their with their single barrel. But anyway, that's just my take on it. Uh, man, yeah, good on you, brother. I am not mad at you. <laughs> no, uh, a pretty interesting history there too. I want to say it got its name from in the 1800s. The guy that started the uh, the company. He asked this girl to marry him, and she said, I'll tell you at the dance, if I'm uh, wearing flowers, you'll know that the answer is yes. So he comes to the dance, and she's standing there holding four roses. That's a pretty cool story. I love that, man. I had no idea. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And the other thing is, you know, they somebody bought the brand and turned it into just absolute garbage, and then... Uh, Somebody bought the brand Four Roses uh, and has really done an amazing job of remarketing that bourbon. Yeah, I I had no idea, man. Yeah, it used to, it was in the toilet. My my dad, I was telling him like, yeah, I really like Four Roses. He said that was garbage when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, I the first time I heard that, um, the first time I heard that name is when I moved up here. There is a bar in my office building. And the guy behind the bar there, I'm, I'm good friends with him now. He loves Four Roses. And he we we threw a party uh, probably a year and a half ago, invited everybody over, and he showed up with a bottle of Four Roses bourbon. And I was like, I the only time I've ever heard of this has not been in a good uh, context. Uh, it, it's been like a, a cheap kind of, you know, lower end uh, bourbon. Uh, but he, uh, like like I say, man, I don't think it's bad at all. It's just not my favorite, but he kind of showed me the way on that. Yeah, it's it's good for mixing, too. So, now, uh, And you're having what? I'm having, man, this is a really interesting beer. So as the listener knows, I'm sure, because I've talked about it in 10 episodes now, I have got a cooler full of Death by Coconut from Oscar Blues. But I'm trying to conserve that. I'm trying to have just a four-pack a week or so, um, because this only comes around once a year. I want to make it last. So I bought a beer from Dogfish Head called Lupu Luau IPA. I've never had this before, but man, I am I am really really enjoying it. And uh, it's it's fairly hoppy. It's 45 IBUs. And here's the thing, Rich. Uh, by the end of this episode, if I keep drinking these things, um, 
I don't know how coherent I'm going to be because there's 7.3 ABV. So we'll we'll see how this goes. Yeah, it could be. uh, (laughs) We could uh, we could have a really interesting show on our hands. That's awesome. All right, brother. So that's what we're drinking. That's what we've done this week. Uh, why don't you lead us into this, man? Where are we going? Well, I think it's important to know why you may want to own firearms. And I know a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with you and I from our other podcasts that we're involved in, and maybe they've followed us for a little bit of time now, so they know we're gun guys, for lack of a better term. Um, so I, I think it's important, though, for the listener that's not necessarily uh, own, that doesn't necessarily own a firearm. That that maybe has been thinking about it, why you may want to own a firearm, and, and we're going to give you some of our reasons why. And of course, this isn't a, a, a all inclusive list, but it's some thoughts, you know, to get you thinking, right? Yeah, definitely, man. And and I I think this is, you know, I think you and I approach a lot of shows like this. Of we'll we'll go into a subject before we go into it, we talk about why it's important and why it's applicable to the listener's life. And I think. Firearms is a thing that a lot of people immediately say, yes, this is important and this is something I need to be into or no, this is not something that's important to me. So um, maybe just challenging those people that think they know why they are into firearms to like maybe expand that uh, list of reasons out a little bit. And maybe people that uh, aren't into firearms at all. This may give you a reason to own a firearm. It may not. We're really not trying to convince you. Um, we're just trying to give you all the information before you make a decision. Yeah, maybe you, you're never going to own firearms, and that's cool. But maybe you have a friend or a family member that does, and maybe this show will help you understand why they've chosen that path, right? Or, or maybe to help the help uh, help guide them and help ask the right questions when. Because as you know, some people just decide, oh, I want a gun without really thinking about why. And without understanding this why, you're probably not going to get the what you need. You you may not make the best decision in the actual hardware you purchase without really comprehending the why and how you're going to use this, right? Yeah, and I put in the show notes that it's to me it's in some way similar to those kind of conversations centering around privacy and security. I remember when I first started talking to you and I'm I'm really digging uh what you do on the privacy and security side of the house. And I'm like, how do I help convince my spouse of this? And I said, you know, she doesn't understand uh, the like, the idea for her is what do you have to hide? And your immediate response was, it's not that I have something to hide, it's that I have something to protect. So to me, that is kind of squ- square one starting space for understanding why you may want to own a firearm because the people that you love, the people that are in your life, those are things that are precious to you. Maybe your own life, those are precious enough to you to want to be have the means to protect them. Would you agree? I, I would definitely agree with that. I think personal protection is probably the single biggest reason people, I, I'm going to say is probably, I, I don't have any numbers to back this up, Rich, this is right off the top of my head, but I'd say that's probably the biggest reason that people own firearms in the in the present day and probably the single biggest reasons that new people get into firearms ownership or decide to approach this is for that reason i would say 100 years ago it was probably for other reasons like hunting but i'd say it's probably the biggest reason people are getting into it now yeah and i want to you know we always have this tagline stay safe and if you can't be safe uh be deadly and or be dangerous whatever and I like that. And I want to tell you a little bit about where it comes from. It reminds me, and Justin, you can tell yours because I think it has some bearing on what we're going to discuss today. And we never really have explained it. When we're inside the wire at a at a fob or whatever, if it, 
Ford operating base, whatever. We're constantly doing force protection, and that is making sure that the force stays safe, making sure that we've got protective measures in place, doing our occupational risk management, we're training. But when we leave that wire, we can't be safe anymore. The safety's out the window. I'm going into harm's way. So whether your protection is at home or whether your protection is I'm going to carry outside the home, we can't be safe anymore. We're leaving our safe space, our home, a place that's there designed to insulate us, protect us, and sustain us. Now I'm traveling out beyond the, the barriers of what is going to protect me, what is going to protect me now. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely, man. Traveling outside the home or in in that rare event that someone decides to come into your home uninvited, um, you want to be able to protect that. And, you know, what, like once we get into the legality thing, the law recognizes that as well. They recognize when you're out and about in public, there's a different legal standard for using deadly force in defense of self and others than there is inside your home. There's a much more... I guess, loose uh, standard inside your own home because that's considered to be your safe haven, your castle, so to speak. Yeah, so uh, this may be hard for uh, the individual listener to understand, but there are, I believe, four separate Supreme Court rulings that the the, uh, police do not have a duty to protect citizens from harm. So even if you have a... uh, You've obtained a court-issued protective order. They still don't have a duty to protect you. So if you're scratching your head, well, whose duty is it to protect me? The, the, the responsibility is yours. Right. And, and one, like one caveat I will throw onto that is law enforcement has no duty to protect individual citizens. So if you call and say, hey, I need to be protected right now, you may or may not get a, the response you anticipate or that you desire. Um, public safety and enforcement of the law is what law enforcement is actually charged with. But as far as an individual citizen goes in any individual circumstance, I'm sure those many of those individual officers would give anything to be able to drop what they're doing and come protect you. That's That's just not always possible, nor is it legally enforceable. No. Now, if a crime is in progress, see that, you know, it's law enforcement is just that it, they're there to enforce the law. They're not there to protect the individual citizens. But like you said, you know, those of us that have, uh, and I'm going to get off on a, a, a tangent for a second. To me, when I was a police officer, my department, we wore a shield. Some departments wear a badge. I really like, and I wish all American uh, police departments, you were required to wear a shield. Because to me, that symbolizes what you're really there to do. To stand in between the bad guy and the citizenry and and protect them with your shield. Because the badge thing to me is always like it's just a symbol of I have some sort of rank or responsibility or whatever in the community. I I didn't like that. Uh, But anyway, we would love to come protect you. But that is not the mandate. So, with that being said, we're to get back on the firearms point, you have the duty to protect you. You have the duty to protect your loved ones and your younger children or what have you. So, don't think that there's anybody else coming to the rescue. Absolutely, man. And uh, so, I'd say the next reason uh, beyond personal protection, and this would be, I guess, a subset of personal protection, is preparedness in the event of a disaster. We touched on this briefly in our All Hazards Preparedness episode a few weeks ago, but when when disaster strikes um there's there is much more potential for some sort of violence some sort of outlier scenario to occur where you may have to defend yourself and defend your you know your well yourself and your family i'm not going to veer outside of 
defense of human life in this episode. But like you mentioned, being able to defend yourself is a key component of being fully and comprehensively prepared for any sort of emergency. Exactly. And the third one we have down here is hunting. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I am not a hunter, but I aspire to be a hunter. I, I, um, if I ever move down there to Tennessee, Rich, uh, I'm going to make you uh, take me hunting. Um, some people want to get into it for the purpose of hunting. And, you know, that may, may seem kind of anachronistic in today's day and age of being able to go to the grocery store and buy your neat meat in a nice, neat package wrapped up in plastic and whatever. But uh, I have always had the desire to take more responsibility for the food that I put in my body. I've uh, I don't currently, but I have raised chickens, I've raised ducks, I've raised turkeys, I've raised pigs, I've grown just enormous gardens and provided most of my own vegetable needs, and I, I'm a big believer in being closer to my food ecosystem, and you know, I, I feel like the more responsibility for that we accept, the uh, the less like, lightly we take that ability to, and not to get too woo-woo here, Rich, but... Uh, that ability to just go out and buy meat in a clean, sterile, sanitary environment without having to really think about where it comes from. Yeah, there was somebody that wrote a piece years ago I read, and I really liked it. He said, every year you should have to go to a cabin and for three days find out where your meat comes from. You have to hunt it. You have to track it. You have to kill it. You have to skin it. You have to harvest it. And then you have to cook it and eat it. <clears throat> and you're going to find out that the that it is a bloody, messy, violent affair, and then you'll come back to civilization thankful that you can go down to your local Kroger or your Publix or what have you and get it uh, with a clean wrapping on it. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah, and, and currently we just outsource that bloody work to someone else uh, so we don't have to see it or think about it, but it's still happening. Hunting, quote-unquote, is still happening it's just happening in these massive commercial feedlots uh, at, at some slaughterhouse in what may or may not be a humane fashion. We like we really don't know. We have no visibility in America on where our food comes and from. And we don't want visibility. And, and I get it. I, I don't necessarily want it either. But I think uh, when you hunt for it, there's a respect for the animal that goes along with it. But anyway, I think that hunting may be a good reason why you may decide you want a firearm. But number four would be a personal hobby. And can you explain what that means? Yeah, man, there's a lot of people I know that own firearms, uh, you know, for a, a number of these reasons. But personal hobby is a big piece of it. They get into collecting certain firearms or they just like going to the range and they don't they don't carry a gun. I've, I've got a few good friends that love to, you know, shoot a little hobby competition or love to trick out a gun and take it to the range a few times. But not really into the personal protective aspect or they don't really hunt or whatever. And that's fine. If that's your, if that's your thing, that's, that's absolutely fine. I think you're missing out, uh, out on a big subset of the capabilities of that firearm. But um, that's one reason that a lot of people get into this. And the next one we've got down here, and I'm sure we're probably missing a few, but I feel like we're hitting the, the high points here is uh, competition. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit, Rich? Sure. There's a lot of different competitions out there. There's uh, something, you know, cowboy action. You can actually dress up like a cowboy and carry period type firearms and have shootouts in a saloon with real bullets and and they uh, compete on this. There's also like action type pistol competitions, which which I'm involved in and Justin, you are too. With the IDPA and USPSA variants, I'm not going to describe what they are and what their differences are. Look them up. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. 
But competition is also a really good way to uh, responsibly learn about owning and using firearms. Uh, I think that if you're approaching it from, I'm going to go watch an IDPA match, okay, this is cool, talk to some people, you're going to find out that there is a subset of American, normally middle-aged folks, that are into it just like your neighbors into golf. And these are good American uh, folks that have chosen to use this as a way to compete and test themselves against their friends uh, once a month. Yeah, and, and again, I know people that compete that don't carry a firearm on a daily basis, don't, don't, you know, don't think of it as a defensive tool. Just think of it as, as the game that competition actually is. So uh, those are some reasons you may want to get into firearms. Dep- like every single one of those reasons, with the exception maybe of personal hobby, will kind of necessitate a different firearm. I'm probably not going to go seriously into a competition with any handgun that's, that's powerful enough to actually hunt with. Um, I'm probably, I I may go into a competition with a little bit more tricked out gun than I would use for personal protection. I may, uh, you know, these are probably going to necessitate a variety of different firearms and you need to kind of pin down what your actual reason is before you start, you know, going to the gun store, looking at the, at the catalogs online or whatever. You know, I'm going to, I'm thinking about this, Justin, and I'm thinking, there are obviously more than the five categories that you and I have talked about, but I'm going to throw maybe one other one on this. So a friend of mine, he inherited a bunch of guns from his uh, family. And then when his wife's father passed away, he inherited more guns. So now he's got like 30 firearms thrust upon him all of a sudden. And he's like, okay, well, this is kind of cool. I shoot every now and then I hunt. He goes, but what if something happens to me? So he had it written in his will that, uh, and I agreed to it that Rich Brown is going to sit down and show my children the safe utilization of each one of these guns. And when he feels that they are competent to handle these guns, he will give them to them at that appointed time of his choosing. And I thought, man, what a very responsible thing to say. Instead of like what happened to him, a, a bunch of guns just getting dumped on him and him not knowing really what to do with them. And some of them he weren't familiar with, like lever actions and some bolt action shotguns. He wants me to go in, if, if hopefully I'm still around, <laughs> and show his kids how to use them. I, I thought that was pretty cool. That is a pretty cool uh, way to do that, man. I, I like that a lot. So my, I guess my point with that is his decision on why he would become a firearm owner was taken away from him when the court went, here's these guns. You know, they're yours now. Go bye-bye. Yeah, inheritance might be a reason that you have this thrust upon you rather than making that decision yourself. So. Yeah, I'm glad you threw that in there. And and again, man, I'm sure that you and I are missing quite a few different categories. I've, I feel like we've hit the really, really big ones that cover probably 95% of people. But yeah, man, I'm, I'm sure we're also missing a lot. So if, if you think of any more, feel free to drop them on there, man. All right, man. So let's talk about the next one. Legal, ethical, and financial obligations of firearms ownership. Okay, uh, legal. You need to know the relevant laws that pertain to firearms possession and ownership where you live. And if you travel and if you intend to travel with these firearms, obviously you need to know the relevant laws in any areas that you're traveling to because these vary widely state to state. Sometimes they vary between different cities or counties within a state. So you need to be on top of your game with knowing these laws. There are serious ramifications for this. You can't go out of state and buy a handgun and bring it back to your state. 
Um, you, you may find yourself in a real jam there. You may be packing up and moving across the country and move to a state where, holy crap, everything you had was perfectly legal where you lived. And now if you get caught with this stuff, you are in a, you're in a mess. So you really need to know the laws before or start to familiar, familiarize yourself with the laws before you start purchasing things, before you start deciding what you're going to purchase. You need to know what's available to you based on your laws, and you need to know what you can do with those firearms once you possess them and how you need to store them and how you need to travel with them. You may, This right here is the most important thing. Well, maybe not the most, but definitely one of the top two most important things we're going to discuss this morning. And when I was an instructor at the School of Infantry, we used to call it a foot stomper moment. You know, I'd stand at the podium and I'd stomp my foot. And that was an indication to the students that you will probably see this again on a test, right? So if there was going to be a test at the end of this uh, podcast, this would be one of them. And I'll give you an example. I'd be like, well, Richard, Justin, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to buy one here and, uh, Tucson where I live and it's it's not a big deal. I'm like, and I get it, man, but let's say you're flying from Tucson to Maine. And I I'm, I don't know if there is a reciprocity agreement between uh Tucson and, and Maine, but let's say there is. And somewhere flying over Pennsylvania, your uh plane encounters some sort of problem and they have to land and at LaGuardia, okay? And they tell you they can't have the plane fixed till tomorrow, but that's not a problem. They're going to put you up at the Hilton Garden Inn and just come collect your bags and go on over to the Hilton. You cannot take that firearm and that ammunition that you were going to lawfully carry in Maine out into the city of New York. You're going to go to jail. You're going to go to jail, in fact, if you come back through that airport. Let's say you make it out. When you come back and try to check your bags and declare that firearm, there's a good chance they're going to call the police. So... When you think about it, if you're a new if you're new to firearms and you're thinking that this is the first time that you've really considered maybe the potentials of uh, you know exercising your Second Amendment right and actually going out and purchasing a handgun, you have got to know the laws. And if you don't, you could find yourself in jail with nothing but the best of intentions. You know, I, and I think about a place in the country that has very radically different laws in one really tight location. Think about the Washington, D.C. area, which it has Virginia on one side, Maryland on the other, and I've spent a fair amount of time there. And you can have a permit that is perfectly legal to carry a firearm in the state of Virginia. And let's say you put an address in your GPS and you get route, rerouted through the District of Columbia. That permit is carries no legal authority whatsoever. You are committing a felony by passing through the District of Columbia, and then you find yourself in Maryland. Now you're committing a misdemeanor, maybe another crime, depending on what firearm you have on you, all just in that one tight little area. Um, Let's place this somewhere on the border, South Texas or Arizona or Southern New Mexico. If you happen to find yourself, uh, you know, in the backcountry and you happen to cross into Mexico inadvertently with a firearm on you, now you're looking at potentially spending the rest of your life in, well, it's probably not going to happen. Somebody's probably going to get you out, but you're probably going to spend tens of thousands of dollars just to get yourself back across the border to your home country. That firearm's long gone and, uh, you're never going to travel to Mexico again. Or, and same thing, you know, up North in North Dakota, uh, Idaho, Washington, uh, if you happen to cross that Canadian border, same thing. Um, you have to really know these laws and have to really be cognizant of where you are. And and if this is just something you're going to put in your home and never take outside of your house except to go to the range that's 
right down the road in your state. It's probably not an issue, but you need to be thinking about these things. And on Justin's point, I'll give you an example. Uh, The chief instructor, when I went to um, uh, uh, high-risk personnel course up at Quantico many moons ago, was a a former force reconnaissance Marine named Rex Petrie. Do you know that name? No, I don't. Yeah, it's before your time, but... Rex was a really good dude. He left the force reconnaissance community, uh, got out, and was a uh, federal agent for years, was a federal air marshal. The guy had a stellar career. Uh, He had worked as a contractor overseas for years and years. And he gets hired during the Baltimore riots to come down to Baltimore to help uh, with personal security of certain folks in, in and around the Baltimore City area. So he packs up his gear Throws his his Glock 19 and a couple magazines in his backpack and heads down to the courthouse where he's supposed to go. And they're like, uh, they see him pull up and they're like, you got any firearms in the car? He's like, yeah, I I was told to come here and bring my stuff and here's my license. And anyway, he ended up getting arrested and spent the next two weeks in jail, Baltimore City Jail. And when he went before the judge and she said, uh, you terrify me. You carried a gun into this town. Uh, I'm I'm going to, no bail for you. You're going to sit here and wait. So he ended up spending two weeks there. And, and the guy's never had, never been arrested in his life. He's devoted his entire life. And this is a 40-something-year-old man who's been a federal agent and a contractor for years, a former uh, Marine. And just that little thing right there. And finally, it took two weeks to, to track down who had the authority to tell him to come in the community with a gun. Now, ultimately, he got an apology and stuff like that from the judge. But I'm like, you know what? This is a prime example of what you're talking about. One small misstep, and, and there you go. Yeah, so you definitely need to know uh, the laws about possession, transport, carry, Uh, You also need to know the laws about safe storage. Some states have very specific laws about how firearms have to be stored. Uh, They may have to be stored in some sort of secure container. Uh, They may have to be stored in in a variety of ways, but you need to know what that is. If your house, you know, burns down, we talked about the fire prevention episode a few weeks ago, and they find these firearms stored in not a safe way or some other circumstance forces authorities into your home and they find firearms not stored correctly or your building maintenance comes into your home and reports it to the police, you could, man, you could really find yourself in, uh, in a hurt locker over something as simple as that. So uh, you need to know that. You also need to know what the purchase requirements are in your jurisdiction, what the age uh, requirement are, what the permitting requirements are. In some states, for instance, you have to actually go get a permit to purchase a firearm. And that may be on a, on a, you have to get one permit for one firearm, or you may be able to get something like a concealed carry permit and buy as many as you want. Uh, you, there may be a, you know, a 10 day waiting period after you've paid your money or, you know, put down a deposit, you got to wait 10 days and come back. These things vary incredibly broadly state to state. And again, I want to make sure that I'm talking to, uh, the listener out there who's not necessarily a firearm guy that, or gal that doesn't know the laws, because I'll give you an example of how you can get into hot water again. Uh, this master sergeant up in Louisville, Kentucky that I was friends with, he goes to a, it was like a biker rally, you know, and he was uh, with a motorcycle group. And he goes to this rally, and he buys a, a rifle out of the trunk of this guy's car. What he doesn't know is it's an ATF sting. 
And here he is with 19 years in the Marine Corps. He's about to retire, you know, 19 years of honorable and faithful service. He thinks he's buying just a regular rifle. What he didn't know is that the rifle had been converted to a full automatic, and he was facing 30 years in federal prison for that. Ultimately, he got a hung jury and, and got off on it. But again, he was staring down the barrel of 30 years. So if you don't know what the purchase requirements are, I would encourage you find out what they are before you go and buy a, a rifle out of the trunk of a car somewhere, right? I would just say that any jury I'm on would be considered a hung jury, but nothing. <laughs> no, nothing. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. Some states permit face-to-face transactions where I can go meet another person who is legal to possess a firearm and who possesses that firearm legally. I can purchase it from them in a Walmart parking lot, hand them cash, they hand me the firearm, we both drive away, and that's perfectly legal. In some states, I've just committed a felony doing that. So, yeah, yeah, you need to know all this stuff. So, um, know the laws. We'll give you some resources in the show notes that you can go to to look up what your state's individual laws happen to be. Uh, we are, man, we are really just killing it on time here. Um, let's talk about where what I think is an equally important consideration here, and that is the ethical implications of firearms ownership. And uh, with great power comes great responsibility, to quote the great statesman Edwin, uh, Sir Edmund Burke. But and, and firearms are an awesome responsibility. There is an incredible amount of responsibility that's conveyed to you when you take possession of a firearm. You have a tool that is designed to transfer a life-taking amount of power very, very simply and accurately and easily to another. So you have to safeguard that power. That is the responsibility that comes with this. And, uh, man, I, I it, it just it, it, it breaks my heart, man, to read these stories of some kid and these are just breathtakingly common that finds his dad's 38 under the bed and ends up shooting himself or shooting his friend or, or something else like that, man. Uh, I, I would say if you've got small children in your home, dude, you need to really, really stop and think about the, the worst potential outcome and take steps to prevent that. Yeah, 100%. Um, uh, two buddies of mine in high school, they were both uh, – studs on the football team one accidentally shot the other one with his dad's 45 and blew his knee out and uh, you know ended what could have been a really good college football career so it is absolutely real you can read these stories like justin said make sure that safe storage of that firearm becomes a top priority once you bring it into your house but let's also talk about training well well hold on so so um a little more on safe storage there not only is that protecting it from you know untrained or people that lack the maturity to handle firearms, it's, it's also protecting that from criminal actors, right? Like we don't want to arm criminals by having someone break into our home and just take these things. And now guess what? That guy who's already a criminal by virtue of the fact that he's stealing from you and he's, he's committed breaking and entering, he's committed burglary. And guess what? Now he has a gun. We, we don't want to further arm the criminal market. No. And on that point, uh, and we'll go in deeper into this once you actually bring the firearm home uh, in, a, in another one of this multi-part series. But uh, when you're when we talk about safe storage, we're also talking about if you're going to carry it outside the home, you need to be able to retain and maintain control and custody over that firearm. We're also talking about, let's say you do have it at your house, you have it in your gun safe, it is safely stored. 
do you have written down the, the make, model, and serial number on all the firearms you have? Because if they do get out into the community, you want to be able to let law enforcement know that these guns were taken from you, and here they are so that they can put a trace on those firearms. Yeah, so when if that ever passes through a legitimate gun dealer, some sort of legitimate gun sale, and they run that serial number, it will be flagged as stolen. You're probably, like, either way, very low likelihood you're going to get any of that property back, but at least we can prevent that firearm from becoming the property of someone who's going to use it in some sort of criminal way. Dude, did I ever tell you my dad, this actually happened to us in the early 70s, my dad uh, had a 38 stolen, I think it was, and then the, they come in and said, did you sell this gun to so-and-so? Yeah. Well, he had it stolen. That's what it was. My dad sold it to a guy legally. The guy had it stolen. The gun was used in a murder. And they recovered the firearm, and then they went back to the guy and said, do you want the gun back? He's like, no, I don't want a gun back that's used in a murder. Destroy that thing. You know what I'm saying? So these things are incredibly powerful, and you need to be able to safeguard that power. What about training, man? You need it. You need training. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, whether you are going to use this as hunting, whether it's going to be something you take to the range twice a year, whether it's going to be something you carry on a daily basis, you need training. And there's kind of a corresponding level of training there. You probably don't need as much training if you're going to be a casual recreational hobby shooter as you are if you're going about armed in the public, but you still need to be able to safely manipulate that firearm. And when I say manipulate, I mean load, unload, uh, function check, all those all those basic operability steps of of operating that firearm you need to be able to do that safely and that that don't get your information from the movies don't think because oh i grew up around guns i know everything there is to know about them or oh my buddy's a cop and he told me just to do this that that answers the mail you need to get some sort of professional competent training yeah and to to get back to the youtube celebrities out there that are talking about guns there's this one guy who's all of his videos have probably hundreds of thousands of views he's the yankee marshal or the yankee something i don't know but uh, in one of his videos about training, he said, you know, there's a lot of firearms instructors that make a living teaching firearms, and they'll tell you that you have to have training. I'm telling you, that's absolute bullshit. You absolutely do not. Uh, since 1775, American fathers have been doing a phenomenal job of teaching their children how to use firearms responsibly, and that's all you need. And I'm like, well, that's a load of horse shit. Because I'll tell you, right now, the Browns, my family, had a lot of guns. And the firearms handling that I received from them was woefully inadequate. And I love my my father and grandfather. But I did not receive safe, competent training from them. No disrespect. So I, I agree with him as far as it is your right enshrined in the Second Amendment or protected by the Second Amendment, not granted by the Second, but uh, protected by it. It is your right to own a firearm with no particular training whatsoever. I would contend that it's your responsibility, and there's a difference, a vast difference between a right and a responsibility. It's your responsibility to seek some training and know how to handle that firearm safely. Yeah, I'm not saying that we should mandate training, but at the same time, I would tell you that if you just go to, you know, Dick Sporting, well, they don't sell guns anymore, do they? But anyway, go to... Uh, Yeah, they sure do. Oh, do they? Okay, you go go buy a firearm and go home and... You don't know what you don't know, you know, uh, unless you've been trained, you don't realize. And like I said before, it's one of those things where uh, maybe you didn't grow up around guns. Now, where are you going to go to receive that competent instruction? So uh, we're going to talk about this in another uh, episode. So just think about that thought. Think about what we're telling you. Training is something that you really need to consider. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one more thing on the ethical implications here, uh, regardless of what you're using this uh, firearm for, be it personal protection, competition, hunting, whatever, you assume some amount of risk and you impose a small amount of risk on everyone around you when you're using that firearm. It's an inherently dangerous activity. And one thing that you have to remember is that every single bullet projectile cart whatever that leaves that firearms muzzle you are legally financially and ethically accountable for that action uh, even if that action is made in good faith you may still face some sort of uh, reckless endangerment or manslaughter or uh, assault or whatever charge you are legally financially and ethically accountable to every single one every single thing you do with that firearm. So that, that is an awesome responsibility that you need to take into account before you just uh, go uninformed into this world. Yeah. I'll give you a quick example. There's a woman in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, not far from me. A guy walks up to her in the Walmart parking lot. She's putting her stuff away. He walks up to her and starts asking her for a light and she, she's terrified, right? A reasonable fear of her life. She pulls out her handgun. The guy runs away. And he runs in and calls 911, and they arrest the woman because she pointed a firearm at it or just brandished the firearm, let him know that she was armed. That act right there could get her six to eight years in prison. So, again, it's like one of the things that we you didn't necessarily talk about uh, was that, yeah, you're ethically responsible. Yeah, you're legally, yeah, you're financially responsible, uh, but you're also criminally responsible, not just for every round that leaves the muzzle and potentially hurts someone or someone else's property, but just introducing the firearm could put you in prison for the foreseeable future. It's it's something you you need to consider. Yeah, absolutely. You know, let me, let me put, let me tell my own story here on this one. And I don't know if I'll leave this in. I may cut it out. But several years ago, my mother and father got their concealed carry permits. And I helped them pick out, I helped my mom pick out a a gun and like pretty nice firearm. And she, um, a few weeks later, I took her to the range a couple times. She sought no professional instruction. As we know, concealed carry permit classes are pretty much a a very, very minimal standard. And I would not consider that training. I would consider that meeting a a few checks in the box. But a few weeks later, she told me that, oh, I went to my, I went to my church on a, on an off day to, she, you know, she's a key holder at that church. She was going to do some cleaning or something. And she's like, I found the door open and she's like, I didn't know what to do. Was there somebody in there? And I, I, you know, should I take my gun out and go in there and look? And I was like, no, no, absolutely not. If you think you need a gun, you should be getting out of there and you should be calling the police. That is an absolute last resort. That it, it, This doesn't imbue you with any additional powers or authorities or like if you think you need a gun, you should be getting the hell out of there. And that is like, that's the kind of mentality that comes with a lack of training, a lack of knowledge of what the legal ramifications of that are and what your physical capability with that is you're you you know with a 380 in your pocket you're not prepared to clear a building and this is the misconception that comes from being informed largely i think by movies and tv about what firearms can do and what you can do with a firearm yeah that's a great point so what are we going to talk about now 
All right, let's, uh, let's talk about some other uh, financial stuff here. So there are a lot of costs other than a gun itself. And, and I wrote a whole series of articles about this on a website called Lucky Gunner. And a lot of people get wrapped around the axle of looking at the firearm. Oh, that thing's 700 bucks. I saved up $750. I can buy that gun and two boxes of ammo. So I'm good. I'm done. That's all I need. Um, I would say that's not really the case. There's a lot of hidden expenses in here, and you need to budget a lot more than just that gun itself. And if all you're looking at is the gun, um, if that's all your budget allows, maybe you need to think about something and maybe a slightly lower price point. Because what else do we need to think about? What other financial kind of responsibilities do we have here, Rich? Well, for for one, and we already talked about it a little bit, you know, some some competent training on the effective use of the firearm and the safe use of the firearm. We also want to think about safe storage devices. You know, uh, are you going to have a biometric safe at home that only your fingerprints can open? Um, Do you need, what kind of safe do you need? Do you need a safe? So, and I wouldn't bring a gun home until it has a safe storage container to go into to protect it. Uh, also, there's the holsters. You know that that's another consideration. Can you carry a, a firearm with a holster without a holster? I I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, then we got ammunition, and so and that's just a few of the things that they needed to think about before they ever buy that gun and bring it home. Yeah, and you. Pro- I heard some statistic. I don't know if this is backed up by anything whatsoever. I heard it by a pretty reputable dude that says most used handguns in the United States have less than 50 rounds fired through them, which is one box of, uh, of ammunition. You need far more than that. You need to fire far more ammunition than that to build a decent level of competency and proficiency and comfort with that firearm, whatever it is, rifle, handgun, shotgun, whatever it is. Um, so like that's some built-in cost right there, plus range time, plus safety equipment like eye protection, ear protection. And we could go on and on and on down the list with this, but uh, this is a pretty big investment and you don't need to just look at that one, you know, just save for that one, uh, you know, $1,100, whatever, and think you're good. If, if you're actually going to put this into any sort of use whatsoever, there's a lot of other crap that goes with it that you need to be prepared to buy. Also on the financial stuff, Let's talk about the the potential uh, for going to court for using a firearm in self-defense. There will definitely be some cost associated with this, and it could be considerable. Um, I think the uh, this is a pretty oft-cited statistic. The uh, George Zimmerman trial, uh, he was found not guilty of murder in that case, but it cost him, or the the total cost of that was $1.7 million. He raised a lot of money, and his attorneys did a lot of work uh, pro bono, but just, man, just just think about what you're getting into with this, man. Yeah, I, I once heard someone somewhere that you survived the incident in multiple ways. You know, you survive it physically, you need to be able to survive it emotionally, and you need to be able to survive it financially. And uh, like with George Zimmerman's case, you know, he, he will be indebted for the rest of his life trying to pay off uh, that bill. So, and I want to circle back to ammunition real quick, just to give the listener an idea. I shoot probably on average a thousand rounds a month. And for a uh, competitive shooter, that's probably about average. I'm not doing anything wild there. My friend and business partner, Mike Seeklander, you know, the, the, he won the national championship for IDPA, he probably shoots in excess of 50,000 rounds a year. Uh, Those firearms are designed to handle 
a lot of ammunition. So and in order to be competent with it, you're going to have to shoot more than 50 rounds at your uh, concealed carry qualification course. You're going to have to train with it. That is a hidden cost of owning a firearm. If you're not willing to put in the time and training required to be safely and competently handle that firearm, maybe rethink your desire to own a firearm. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, so let's talk about safety rules, Rich. We're so we've talked about um, why you may want to own firearms. We've talked a little bit about the legal, ethical, and financial obligations and ramifications of firearms ownership. Let's talk about the safety rules because this is another basic, basic thing that probably doesn't get covered in a lot of gun-specific podcasts on a regular basis because there's a, there's an assumption of knowledge. There's an assumption that most of those listeners know that information. Here we are trying to assume absolutely nothing. So uh, why don't we why don't we talk about why you need to know this stuff and jump right into it? Sure. Um, the, the safe handling of a firearm. I tell you what, you want to see something terrifying. I, I I haven't been to a gun show in probably at least a decade or so because of the scary stuff that people do with firearms there. And and the NRA show and SHOT show are really no different. And I think that safely handling a firearm, whatever condition it's in, if you follow these four safety rules, probably nothing is going to happen. And if the worst does happen, nobody's going to get hurt. And the acronym for this is TANK, T-N-K-K, TANK. What's number one, Justin, the T for? Treat. Treat every firearm as if it were loaded. No conditional gun handling. There's no, well, he checked it, now I'm looking at it. He may have looked, it's true, he may have pulled the slide of the rear, he may have looked in the chamber and it looked clear. But what he didn't know is that you had been shooting Russian ammo and that stuff looks, the color on it looks just like the chamber and it's easy to overlook that. Treat every firearm as if it were loaded. Yeah, that that just builds that just builds all sorts of bad habits. Conditional gun handling. I want to hit on that. Like, well, this is this gun is unloaded, so I can treat it differently than I would treat a loaded gun. And uh, you know, an awesome example of why that's a bad idea is, man, I I may unload my gun, clean it, do something to it, uh, and then and assume that gun's unloaded come back 20 minutes later, the gun's still laying there. Maybe I loaded it before I walked away and, and I forgot about that. And I picked that up and, you know, just pull the trigger into the wall. I've just put a hole through the wall, potentially through someone else. There's no such thing as conditional gun handling. You treat the weapon, the firearm, the handgun, whatever it is, the exact same way, regardless of whether it's loaded, unloaded, safe, not on safe, whatever the case may be. No such thing as conditional gun handling. No, and a good example, and I saw you do this uh, in a hotel not too long ago. You know, you were doing some dry fire practice. You set the gun, you know, you checked it before you, or you unloaded it, you checked it again, you, you did some dry fire, you went to the the restroom, you, you came back out, you picked the gun back up, you checked it, checked it, rechecked it, then you went back to dry firing because that gun was outside of your custody. Even for a moment, I was in the room, God knows what could have happened. And, and again, that bullet may pass from your hotel room into someone else's room. So there is never a reason not to treat that firearm as if it were loaded. Let's talk about the second one. Never. Never point the muzzle at anything you're not willing to destroy or accept financial responsibility for. So I don't drive, I don't sit on my couch like snapping at my TV like you used to read in gun magazines. Like, oh, try to, you know 
try to do a dry fire on every person when they come on the TV screen or whatever. I'm not willing to pay for a new TV. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I've never dry fire my firearm or point my firearm at my pets, my, um, another human, absolutely never, ever, ever another human, unless I'm actually going to crack a round off at that human because they pose some deadly force threat to me. Uh, I'm never going to, uh, basically I'm going to make sure that gun is never pointed at anything that I am not absolutely willing to destroy. And if it gets destroyed, I'm like, well, it's no big deal. I can, I can repair that. Uh, but anything that would take some sort of life, injure somebody, have the potential to ricochet off into uns- some unsafe direction, whatever the case may be, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Well, yeah, again, uh, that I'm not willing to financially or criminally destroy. Like, I may destroy someone in a Walmart parking lot later today, but when I cover that person with, with that muzzle of my firearm, I'm, I'm accepting responsibility for everything that's going to follow after that. So never, ever, ever point the muzzle at anything you're not willing to... F- to stand behind criminally or financially when it comes to the destruction of that thing. So let's talk about the third one. Keep. Uh, keep your finger straightened off the trigger until you are shooting. That is the only time your finger should be on the trigger is when you are making the conscious decision to actuate that trigger. It's interesting. You watch the pro shooters and they're doing mag changes. They're running and it, to the untrained eye, it may look a little reckless at first, but if you watch them, as they cant the gun to insert a new magazine, that finger comes off the trigger and goes straight along the slide. The new magazine comes in. They rotate the gun back on target. The finger goes back inside the trigger guard, and they're shooting again. So this can be done at speed, and you need to be doing it every single time. Let's talk about the fourth one. Know your target and consider its foreground and background. Tell us about that, Justin. So you need to know what you're shooting at. You need to know what's behind it because very likely if we're just target shooting, that target's going to be cardboard or paper or something along those lines, and your bullet's going to pass easily through it and endanger anything on the other side of it. Uh, You also need to know what's in front of it. And this, uh, I I always throw this in there. We always did this when I was in the military because we did a lot of CQB and we did a lot of uh, very... uh, uh, close range shooting with other people in close proximity and there's the potential for someone to pass in front of your muzzle you need to be aware of what's between you and your target always anyway just as a matter of uh, good practice and i feel like that rarely gets hit on but you need to know what is behind your target in case that bullet passes through you also need to know what's between you and that target in case someone should happen to let's say you are in that walmart parking lot and there is you know people all over the place people get scared there's a good chance someone could run between your muzzle and that intended target so you need to be aware of what's going on around you that's a great one man and you're absolutely right the gun community does a really poor job of talking about the foreground and i'll give you a quick example there was a rabid skunk and this could be a funny story but it actually wasn't that was coming through my pasture and he's just snarling and you know for one he's out during the daylight so that's a bad cue then he sees me and he's advancing in my direction he's still probably about 100 feet off i've got my rifle out and i'm gonna engage the the skunk and yet my horses were just calmly eating in the foreground so they're between me and that and my target so I had to maneuver around to take those horses out of the foreground before I broke the shot. Another thing on that one is it's what is going to stop my bullet because there could be nothing between me and that skunk, but there's something behind it. And the skunk's body wasn't enough to stop that five, five, six 
round. So let's talk about what stops it as well as what's beyond it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at any reputable target range, shooting range, whatever, there's going to be some sort of berm behind your some sort of impact safe area behind your target, be that a steel bullet trap that funnels the bullets back into some sort of area where they are not going to come back on the shooter. Uh, it could be a dirt berm where they just impact in that dirt and sink into the dirt. It could be, uh, th- there's going to be something along those lines, right, Rich? Exactly. So, uh, so the four safety rules are tank T N K K treat, Never keep and know. Keep those in and, mind. And one one thing more on that: if if you are thinking, "Hey, I'm going to get a, a firearm for home defense," uh, considering your background, here's the thing: human bodies are really good at stopping bullets. Um, but if you miss that shot, your sheetrock walls are not very good at stopping bullets. You need to be aware of what's on the other side of those and uh, consider that before you, you know, in your kind of thought process before you start employing a, a firearm for home defense. Yeah, and a, a good example, that, and not every, um, you know, and all rounds are not created equal, as, as I know you know, Justin, as good as anybody. So find out what the ballistics are on the ammunition that you're going to carry. And we'll go into this deeper in a later show, but I would just tell you that um, I was looking at a full metal jacket, uh, 45 caliber round, I forget the grain, but it, it penetrated 29.9 inches of FBI ballistic gelatin. So is that going to traverse a human body and keep on going? Probably, not, necess- not necessarily saying all the time, but based on its performance inside ballistic gelatin, I would say it is going to go beyond. So if that's something you don't want over penetration, make sure that you do your ammunition selection correctly. Yeah, and you know what? I just I just added to our list of future episodes. We, we probably need to do an episode just on that, even though I almost hate to dip, dip my toe in that water because it's such contentious water, but... Um, we should probably talk, we may do end up doing a whole show on that. And basically the rule of, th- I've never heard it put better, but, uh, Kai and I attended a course by Chuck Haggard. He's very well-respected trainer, career law enforcement officer. And basically his advice was it all works pretty good. If you can shoot, none of it works worth a damn. If you can't shoot. Oh, I love it. I'm going to steal that. So let's talk about the purchase process, man. All right, let's do it, man. So selecting a firearm, we're going to talk about, on a completely other show. We're going to have a couple of shows just around that specific thing about picking out what you need based on what you're trying to do. Uh, I don't know how many shows we're going to have in that series, but we will talk about that. Uh, You need to know if your state requires a permit to purchase or not. Tell me about that because I'm not familiar with that. I know you've lived in the state of North Carolina, and I have too, and I can tell you this is exactly how it works in North Carolina. If you were just Joe Citizen, John Q. Public, and you go to purchase a handgun, they're going to say, where's your permit? And you're going to have to have one of two things. If you don't have a concealed carry permit, you're going to have to go to your police, your local sheriff's department. You're going to have to apply for a pistol purchase permit, and they'll make you wait five days. You pay, I, I think it's maybe a $5 fee to get that permit. And then you, once they run your background and whatever else, you come back, pick up your permit, and then you take that to the gun store along with your money and you buy your one handgun for one permit. Uh, Now, that is superseded by a concealed carry permit. If you have a concealed carry permit in North Carolina, you just go down to the gun store, you present that permit in lieu of a pistol purchase permit, and you buy your handgun or handguns, as many as you want, as frequently as you want. Uh, But you will have to have some kind of permit in some states. And some states, you have to have a permit for everything. Massachusetts, you either have a Class A 
I think it's class A, B, or C license to carry. Class A means you can actually carry a firearm and you can buy any handguns or long guns that are legal in the state. Class B means you can buy buy long guns and handguns, but you can't carry. And I think class C means you can only buy long guns or something like that. But either way, you have to go to your local chief of police and apply for that permit and you get the permit that you get. And that defines your the level of firearms ownership that you can participate in, basically. Um, California, you can only purchase one handgun every 10 days, no matter what. So you you kind of need to know what your what that permit permit process is, how to go about it. Um, and then what that, what that allows you to do. Cool. No, I didn't know any of that. It sounds a lot like number three, which is the waiting period. You know, uh, this is something that's alive and well in a lot of States. Thankfully it's not in my state of Tennessee, but I've lived in States where you actually had to go. And like you said, Justin, it was a 15 day waiting period from the time that you paid for it the time you had your background check ran, and then you can come back 15 days later and pick your firearm up. All right, Rich. So we have picked out our firearm. We've saved up our money. We've got our permit. What happens now? Well, you're going to have to fill out the uh, uh, BATF form 4473, right? Yeah, and that's uh, basically that's some biographical information about you, your name, your date of birth, the place you were born, your uh, current address, you have to answer a bunch of questions. Are you a fugitive from justice? Are you a current a, a current user of controlled substances? And, uh, you know, just one thing to note here that's becoming kind of a problem or kind of a not it's not a gray area in the eyes of the law, but a gray area among some firearms ownership. If you use marijuana legally, it's legal in your state that is still prohibited federally. To answer honestly, you would still have to yes answer yes, I'm a user of unlawful substances, which would preclude you from owning that firearm. The alternative is to lie on that form, or I guess the alternative to the alternative would be to quit long enough to answer honestly no. Uh, so be aware that even if you're using a, a marijuana in a state where marijuana is legal in that state, it is still not legally it's still not legal federally, and you have to answer that honestly. Anyway, big sidetrack there. You fill out this form. You hand it to the dealer. He or she fills out their federal firearms license number. They fill out the make, model, serial number, and caliber of the firearm. And then they proceed to the next step, which is to run your background. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I don't even really know the, uh, how that goes down, to be honest with you. It's just kind of a mystery to me. They take the form. They walk over to the telephone, or they walk into the back room. They come out and tell me I'm, I'm good to go five minutes later. So I'm not even sure what happens on that. Are you? Yeah, so they actually call an ATF hotline. Uh, call, or you can do it online, or you can call. And I've, I've seen both happen. Um it's called a NICS check, a national instant criminal something check. Uh, it basically just runs a quick background check to see if you have any warrants out, if you've been convicted of felonies, if you have any. There's certain types of crimes that may preclude you from owning a firearm, like domestic violence. Um, basically, just run a, a very basic background check on you and make sure you're not wanted or a felon. And then if that comes back, uh, good to go. And you have... Uh, waited through your waiting period and you have your money and all that basically at that point you pay that dealer and you uh you he boxes up your gun and you head home and you know what this reminds me of it reminds me of uh, for those of you listening that are parents 
if you're a new firearm owner, it's probably similar to taking your child home for the first time. You know, you're like, uh, do, do we have the car seat right? Do, do we know how to strap the car seat, the baby into the car seat? Do we, do we have the everything we need? Do we have diapers and, and formula and everything at home? That's the level of consideration you probably need to have before you buy your first firearm and take it home. Do we have the storage thing for the firearm at home? Do I know the laws on how I can legally transport this firearm from the dealership to my home? I mean, all those steps have to be pre-thought out, which kind of leads me into my next, the next thing we have here, Justin, potential pitfalls. Yeah, this is a, this is a good one, man. Uh, so first and foremost, since we just talked about purchasing, straw purchasing is a massive, massive potential pitfall. And I actually saw this in a gun store not too long ago. So uh, we haven't talked about it on this episode, but you can buy firearms online. And that is not the loophole that some people think it is. It has to be shipped to a federally firearms licensed dealer. You have to go to that dealer and go through the whole process of background check and 4473 as if you would bought it from that person. And he will just transfer that legally over to your possession and you pay him maybe 25 bucks for his time. The, the the instance that I saw this, I was in a gun store, I was waiting to use their range, and there was a, a gentleman and a lady that walked in, and uh, they said, oh, we're here to pick up this firearm, the guy did, and it was addressed to his name, it was shipped in his name, he's like, yeah, I bought this on gunbroker.com or whatever, and he said, but my girlfriend is going to buy it. And the guys and I watched this guy in this gun store go through with that transaction, even though that admission right there was an admission that this is a straw purchase. And that's one of the questions on the 4473 is the purchaser of this firearm, the person filling out this form. And I I basically just watched a felony go down right there, man. And uh, I I hope that gun store has gotten their shit straight since because they're going to be in a world of hurt if they if they continue that. Yeah, that is all bad. Man, that is, yeah, that is bad business. But basically, the point is, you can't buy a gun for someone else. If that person can't legally buy that gun, they're probably not legal to own it. You cannot buy a firearm for someone else. And because basically, you're, you're stating legally in that form that you are buying that firearm for yourself. And just anecdotally, it seems to me like a lot of these uh, active shooters, when you hear the investigation, the things that they learn, it seems like a lot of the ways that the active shooters got their firearms were through straw man purchases. So, uh, you know, definitely not something I would want on my hands if I help someone per- illegally purchase a firearm and then they use it for a horrific uh, thing like that. But let's, what's the second pitfall? Uh, traveling across state lines. We've, we've talked about this a little bit, Rich, and uh, man, this is probably enough to talk about to warrant its own episode at some point in the future. But uh, some states, uh, I was in South Carolina, uh, interfacing with some law enforcement personnel several years ago and i did not have a permit to carry that was valid in south carolina and i said hey guys just fyi i've got a firearm with me what's how how do i get legal to carry this thing in the car and the guy's like it just has to be out of sight you can put it in your center console under the seat glove box whatever as long as it's out of sight you were legal to have that firearm in the vehicle with you uh go somewhere like california or new york that firearm has to be unloaded. It has to be in a locked container. It has to be in the further furthest most portion of the vehicle, like the trunk. And am, any ammunition you have with it has to be locked in a separate container. So these things vary really, really widely, and you need to know the law before you travel across state lines. You need to look at what that state's transport laws are. 
and we could go down a massive rabbit hole with this, but for, for the sake of time, because we're already pretty deep into this, I won't go too far into that. I'm going to give one quick story just for the listener that isn't a firearms person that may be a little confused. I'm going to make it even more confusing. You mentioned interfacing with law enforcement. So as a listener may or may not know, I, I still uh, teach firearms to law enforcement military folks uh, from time to time. We were in, um, I'll give you three quick things. I'm in Montana one time teaching a law enforcement group. We get there and the chief of police is like, look, I don't have a whole lot of shooters here. Can I count on you and my buddy Mike uh, to help us out if we get in a bad way? And we're like, absolutely. Well, then consider yourself deputized. And Rich, can you drive that patrol car? So I'm running around in civilian clothes and a beard uh, with a gun stuck down my waistband uh, driving a patrol car in this small town. Then I go to Oregon uh, later on in that year, teaching a group of cops in Portland, Oregon, if you can believe it. And Oregon does not recognize my Tennessee carry permit. So even though I'm there training law enforcement, I can't legally concealed carry. And the cops are like, hey, man, just just open carry. And I'm like, eh, that presents some problems. Go across the state line to Washington State. They do recognize my permit. And I'm back carrying again, teaching a group of uh, Tacoma cops. So it, it is confusing. You need to know the law so that you don't run afoul of it. And everywhere you go, it seems like the laws are completely different. So it's it's crazy, man. Yeah. And then uh, the, the last potential pitfall to avoid that we have on here is listening to uh, gun store experts, man. And um, we could do a whole episode on why I hate going into gun stores, but a big portion of that reason is the people that work at them. And not to not to denigrate everybody that works in a gun store, but, man, there's a lot of bad information. There's a lot of wannabe tactical cool guy commandos that are really store clerks uh, working in these places. And, man, they do absolutely do not have the best information. I know, and I really, I, I'm with you, man. I don't want to paint an entire community of people with the same brush, but I would just tell you, in my 48 years on Earth, in my 30-plus years of shopping and purchasing guns, this has been a constant, and it is absolutely disturbing uh, some of the things that they get wrong in a gun store. So don't expect that when you're going to a gun store to buy a firearm that you're going to get the absolute best information. That's probably not going to be the case. Do your homework before you go. Yeah, definitely, man. Well, we have rambled on and told story after story after story. Should we jump into the book of the week, or we got anything else to add first? No, man, let's do it. All right, what do you got? Okay, the book of the week, man, is going to be a book by Paul M. Barrett. It's Glock, The Rise of America's Gun. It came out in 2013, and I absolutely love this book. Matter of fact, I bought it for Christmas presents for people in my family that uh, own Glock handguns because I just found the story of how Gaston Glock created this firearm and uh, how it became probably the most popular handgun in America, man. Have you read this book? I sure have, dude. I read this on your recommendation, and I, I could not put this thing down, man. Uh, all the inner workings and... Uh, I mean, probably that you would have with any company the size of Glock, Inc. It was freaking fascinating. Yeah, because it had a little bit of everything. You know, how Glock became like the handgun for America's law enforcement. There's all those stories. There's a little side story about how a Glock was used in an accidental accidental killing by a police officer here in Tennessee that I thought was fascinating. Uh, taking uh, law enforcement officers to 
topless joints to get them to buy guns. I mean, it's just a fascinating story of how... Dude, there, there is everything. There's an assassination attempt. There is sex. There's intrigue. There's uh, backstabbing and double dealing and everything you could possibly imagine, man. It, it, it is a fascinating story. The story of the basically the booth bunnies at all these firearms conventions like that was uh kind of the you know the mastermind of mr glock yeah so definitely want to check that out and uh that is our book of the week justin you want to take us out yeah let's do it man so first of all thanks to everybody for listening to across the peak be sure to check out across for show notes additional content and more be sure to follow us on instagram at across the peak Again, guys, please tell someone you know about Across the Peak. That is the best way to spread this. If you have time, we would really appreciate it if you guys uh, leave us a rating and or review, especially those reviews on iTunes. They really help us get found. And until next week, remember, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.